sex as procreation is that all there is the ancient romance liked the idea of nature in fact they liked it so much that they codified it as a principle known as natural law this principle distinguished the laws enacted by mere humans from the laws inherent in glorious nature and just what did natural law encompass the third century a.d jurist ulpian explained natural law is what nature has taught all animals this law is not unique to the human race but common to all animals born on land or sea and to birds as well from it comes the union of male and female which we call marriage as well as the procreation of children and their proper education educatio we see in fact that all other animals even wild beasts are regulated by an understanding of this law end of excerpt the notion that non-procreative sex was quote-unquote natural or a quote crime against nature unquote was quickly co-opted by the still coalescing christian church and by the middle of the 13th century was explicitly incorporated into orthodox christian doctrine thus saint thomas aquinas argued that nature designed semen and ejaculation to create children and thereby perpetuate the species to expend semen from any purpose other than reproduction was quote contrary to nature unquote and was therefore sinful saint thomas identified four activities as particularly abhorrent masturbation bestiality homosexual copulation and heterosexual coitus in other than church mandated quote-unquote missionary position though it now sounds quite archaic one of the most heinous sins of all even within the sacred bounds of the marital union was engaging in sex for the sake of pleasure according to the church intercourse was to be performed with as little emotion as possible however since it was recognized that some enjoyment of the physical accompaniments of the sexual act was unavoidable saint paul counseled abstinence for followers wishing to remain pure and for those unable to control their animal lusts there was always marriage begin excerpt it is good for a man not to touch a woman nevertheless to avoid fornication let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband i say therefore to the unmarried and widows it is good for them if they abide if they abide even as i but if they cannot contain let them marry for it is better to marry than to burn End of excerpt. It was not until the late 
16th century that the church legitimized sexual pleasure for husbands and wives, provided, of course, that procreation remained the aim of the sexual union and that no contraceptive methods were employed. Non-procreative sex, however, remained taboo. Roman and Christian writers were not the only ones to advocate a primarily procreative role for sexuality. Plato's laws, for example, suggested that sex should be limited to spouses and engaged in solely for the purpose of reproduction. Plato also distinguished the pleasures of same-sex intercourse from those of procreative sex between a man and a woman, the former of which he considered quote-unquote unnatural. On the other hand, despite lofty proclamations extolling the quote-unquote naturalness of procreative sex, there is ample evidence of the prevalence of non-procreative sex in the ancient world. The practice of depicting the pleasures of sex either explicitly in word or implicitly in artistic form is nearly as old as the written and pictorial record. Gilgamesh and other stories from the ancient world proclaim and extol the ecstasy of non-procreative sex. In Western culture, this form of erotic expression reached its zenith in the classical Greek aesthetic. In addition to the musings of Plato and Aristotle, a wide variety of Greek authors and artists addressed themselves to the theme of sexual pleasure. Included in the gamut of Greek texts and art forms are gynecological treatises, vase paintings and poetry, plates, sculptures, mosaics, and dr drama. For example, Aristophanes' Lysistrata. Sexual themes are also represented in abundance in, po in the poetry and the art of ancient Rome. The Latin epigrammatic poet Marshall, for instance, catalogs a variety of heterosexual pleasures thusly. Quote, Last night the soft charms of an exquisite whore fulfilled every whim of my mind. Till with fucking grown weary i begged something more one bliss that still lingered behind my prayer was accepted the rose in the rear was open to me in a minute one rose still remained which i asked for of my dear twas her mouth and the tongue that lay in it Unquote. Yet despite the tales told by ancient art and artifacts and by contemporary, i.e. 20th century, tomes heralding the widespread prevalence of non-procreative sex, e.g. the Kinsey volumes, reproductive sex still reigns supreme in the public and private consciousness 
as the non-pareil, quote-unquote, natural function of human sexuality. Evidence of its sovereignty is readily apparent in the continued legislation against sodomy in the United States and elsewhere, in the popular idealization of women as mother, in the existence of restrictions on contractual marriage, on prevailing theological doctrines, and so on. Even today, procreation is still assumed to be the premier biological function and the ideal expression of human sexuality. However, in this chapter, we would like to suggest that despite popular ideology and declarations to contrary, procreation is neither the soul nor even the principal function of human sexuality. In support of this blasphemy, we provide a different interpretation of the biological and social record. One, that is shaped by such diverse influences as Latin poetry, ancient Greek art, and observation of non-human primates. Thus, although the evolutionary function of sex is certainly the continuation of the human species, or at least the, ge the genes of particular individuals, procreation is hardly the only or even the dominant meaning of sexuality in contemporary Western society. This is not to deny that in some cases men and women have sex to conceive children. Rather, we wish to emphasize the obvious fact that reproduction is not the only or even the most popular reason for engaging in sex. In particular, we deny the implication arising from the view of procreation as the only legitimate rationale for sex, that forms of sexual expression other than penile vaginal intercourse are somehow immature, unnatural, or evolutionarily maladaptive. Just how natural is non-procreative sex? We begin by considering data from the animal world, in particular non-human primates. It is often presumed, quite erroneously, that humans are the only intelligent social or conscious inhabitants of this planet. Non-human animals are viewed as glorified robots governed solely by biological urges and surges, i.e. genes, reflexes, and hormones. In contrast, the exalted human brain ponders, evaluates, and makes decisions before acting. But is there really any good reason to believe that humans are unique in their capacity to reason? Although we can never know subjectively what it's like to be a bat, i.e., we can never feel what it feels, we can nonetheless extrapolate from externally observable behaviors to its putative mental life. <laughs> 
This exercise is fraught with dangers, of course. Many researchers would even deny that the bat has any mental life to extrapolate to. However, there is generally greater consensus where sexual behavior is concerned. Despite the anthropomorphizing of dog and cat owners, who, for example, may refuse to have their tomcat neutered for fear of derailing his feline sex life, the prevailing view among biologists is that most animals governed by nature, quote-unquote nature, essentially hormones, have sex for the purpose of furthering their genes without any conscious recognition of the significance of this natural urge or the pleasure that might accompany its satisfaction. A closer examination of non-human sexuality, however, reveals far greater complexity than the simplistic, quote, animal as automaton, unquote, view implies. Not all sex among animals have reproductive aims, nor is all such behavior clearly lacking in emotional significance for the participants. Indeed, the speciousness of this view was even recognized in early Christian documents. As anyone who has spent any time around animals can attest, homosexual and other non-procreative behaviors are readily apparent in the lower species. Primates are particularly notorious for their displays of non-reproductive sexuality. The title of Kurt Vonnegut's Welcome to the Monkey House is an oblique reference to such displays. Homosexual and masturbatory behaviors are commonly observed among male dolphins as well, as are beak genital and flipper genital contact between males and females. In fact, virtually every eutherian, quote-unquote, or rather, parentheses, placental, mammalian species displays some form of non-reproductive sexuality. However, next to humans, the most sexually diverse member of the animal kingdom is probably the little-known bonobo, or pygmy chimp. At first glance, the bonobo looks much like an ordinary chimpanzee, the pygmy label being largely a misnomer. Indeed, bonobos, pan paniscus, are very closely related to the common chimpanzee, pan troglodytes. The respective branches of the evolutionary tree having diverged only 3 million years ago. The bonobo and the chimpanzee are believed to be the closest extant relative of Homo sapiens, with whom they shared a common ancestor a mere 10 million years ago. Bonobos may be distinguished from their chimpanzee cousins by their more graceful builds, paler lips, and their turn-of-the-century coifers. As bonobo expert Franz de Waal observes, quote, Bonobos have long, fine black hair so neatly parted in the middle that you would swear 
Each individual spends an hour a day in front of the mirror. Unquote. Bonobos display a rich social life in which they employ verbal, facial, and gestural forms of communication. They also appear to be somewhat less aggressive than common chimps. The relevance of these primates to the current discussion is this. Like their human relatives, bonobos enjoy a diverse sexual repertoire, including oral genital sex, masturbation, intergenerational adult juvenile sex, and so on. In the words of Dewal, bonobos have behave as if they read the Kama Sutra, performing every position and variation imaginable. Unquote. Sex is not just for procreation anymore. One might argue, and many have, that non-procreative sex, including but not limited to masturbation, oral sex, and sex between persons of the same gender, is evolutionarily maladaptive because it does nothing to further the lineage of the individuals involved and in many cases quote-unquote wastes energy and precious resources such as sperm. Men, for example, have been admonished against spilling their seed by authorities ranging from the Christian church to such vocal individuals as singer, recreationary, orange juice, orange juice peddler, Anita Bryant, in ancient Persia, a punishment of 800 lashes awaited any man who involuntarily emitted his seed. Incidentally, the widely cited biblical reference to the spilling of seed, Genesis 38.9, does not refer to masturbation but instead to the practice of coitus interruptus. The verse in question reads, and Onan knew that the seed should not be his, and it came to pass when he went unto his brother's wife that he spilled it on the ground, lest that he should give seed to his brother. In this verse, Onan breaks the Hebrew law of the leveret by intentionally spilling his seed rather than impregnating the wife of his deceased brother. However, the fact that this is but an unfortunate misreading of Genesis has done nothing to stop the onslaught of admonitions against masturbations, or onanism, as it is sometimes called. Nor has it prevented the introduction of singularly bizarre remedies for preventing autoerotic stimulation to be discussed further in chapter 7. In 1870, for example, the prestigious British medical journal The Lancet advised, quote, 
guarding the penis for a time against improper manipulation, unquote, by, quote, keeping its up slight soreness of the body of the organ, sufficient to render erection painful, unquote. Presumably, this was necessary to avoid the insanity inevitably produced by excessive, quote-unquote, manipulation of this popular body part. Masturbation was also believed to diminish the sexual incentive for men and women to marry. The desire for marital sex presumably being lost, quote, when by this means they appease their lustful appetites, unquote. Moreover, the pleasure that accompanies the ejection of semen was itself considered an abomination. Big enough excerpt. The intrinsic malice of pollution, meaning self-induced orgasm of any kind, consists most probably in the intense sexual enjoyment and satiation of pleasure, occurring outside the legitimate body of matrimony, which the effusion of seed produces, and not only nor principally in the voluntary frustration of the seed itself, Reason requires its prohibition, for if this pleasure, which nature only permits to entice men into matrimony, were to be lawful outside of it, men would avoid the married state, 
and the natural and legitimate propagation of the species would be defeated. However, the effusion of semen would be legitimate for medical purposes if only it could be achieved without causing pleasure. End of excerpt. One of the most persistent rationales for the condemnation of masturbation is a misguided belief in the omnipotence of sperm for, quote, sturdy manhood loses its energy and bends under too frequent expenditure of its important secretion, unquote. An especially novel means of conserving, quote, this important secretion, unquote, was practiced by male members of the Oneid Oneidan sect, a utopian community founded in New York in the middle of the 19th century. Oneidan men were taught that orgasm drained them of vital fluid, enervating the body and the spirit. They were therefore instructed to practice a peculiar form of male continence in which ejaculation, but not intercourse, was avoided. In Western cultures, sperm depletion anxieties can be traced back as far as Hippocrates and the 5th century BC. However, such beliefs are not restricted to the Western world. For example, men on the island of Yap in the South Pacific believe that too frequent ejaculation causes physical weakness and increases susceptibility to certain diseases. Similarly, in the Taoist tradition of ancient China, the expenditure of semen was believed to entail a corresponding loss of masculine yang essence. We shall return to this topic in chapter 7 when we consider masturbation and its relationship to pornography in greater detail. But is sperm really a resource in need of strict conservation? While the typical male expels billions of spermatozoa with each ejaculation, the reservoir is quickly refilled with a return to full potency in about two days. Furthermore, men produce sperm continually throughout their postpubertal lifetimes, usually seizing only in extreme old age or at the time of death. It is therefore hard to see how the spilling of limited quantities of the male seed could threaten the survival of the human race. In contrast, the ovum is, in many ways, a limited, non-renewable resource, though capacity for egg production being essentially fixed at birth. Few women, however, endeavor to ensure that no egg falls unfertilized, nor have the moral practitioners advanced this neglected cause. Of course, if all of a man's sperm are quote-unquote spent in non-procreative activities, then his genes will not be passed on, at least not directly, a situation that might be considered individually maladaptive in that it violates the evolutionary imperative to propagate one's genes.
exclusive homosexuality and the lack of offspring, it nominally implies ignoring modern biomedical marvels such as artificial insemination could be considered maladaptive in this restricted sense. However, see chapter 4. Yet for the majority of people who engage in non-procreative sex and the majority of people who do engage in non-procreative sex, these activities in no way diminish the capacity to reproduce themselves and their genes should they desire to do so. Although the total number of sexual experiences in a person's lifetime is clearly bounded, it is also very large. Furthermore, only a very small proportion of these experiences need result in pregnancy for the human race to reproduce itself. Moreover, the fact that some sexual activities cannot lead to conception should not be held against them, so to speak. No woman has ever become pregnant from playing basketball, attending the opera, or dancing. Yet seldom are these activities prescribed for that reason alone, at least in modern times. Throughout its history, the Christian church has periodically attempted to ban all pleasurable activities, including dancing and attending the theater. Perhaps in doing so, the church merely sought to err on the side of caution by eliminating all activities that could reasonably precede sex. Taken too literally, this often prompted some rather absurd prohibitions on baths, wine, and so forth. Why, then, is non-procreative sex held to a different standard than other productively safe activities, such as skiing, movie-going, or swimming in public. We've already dismissed the argument that views non-procreative sex as wasting a limited natural resource, provided that pregnancy is a possible outcome of at least some sexual encounters, and even with modern contraceptive methods, many such opportunities continue to exist. Procreation will occasionally occur. We have also argued based on evidence garnered from observation of one of the humankind's closest relatives on the evolutionary tree that non-procreative sex cannot properly be considered quote-unquote unnatural if natural is accorded to customary meaning. If a quote-unquote dumb animal like the bonobo can engage in oral genital sex, how unnatural can it be? Of course, according to church teachings, people should be able to rise above such bestial instincts in pursuit of loftier spiritual ideals. Perhaps non-procreative sex is taboo because the behaviors themselves are perversions, of quote-unquote natural function of the sexual apparatus, which, of course, is implicitly construed as reproduction. This view was succinctly expressed by Dr. Little, Littleton, a headmaster at Eton, a prestigious English boys' school, who said, quote, 
all exercise of a bodily faculty for the sake of pleasure and except for the purpose of for which the faculty was given is wrong. Unquote. Notice that the fault here lies not with the pleasure one feels, but with the reason one feels it. It is also it is all right to enjoy coitus, sans contraceptive, of course, but only if one's purpose is to create another young lad to bolster Eden's roles or, alas, to rule the commonwealth. Similar applications of this principle to other bodily functions would condemn kissing, which is a perversion of the natural gustatory function of the oral cavity, and simple caressing, since this pleasure is certainly a violation of the quote-unquote proper function of the touch receptors of the skin, whatever that function might be. The absurdity of this position should be clear. Furthermore, if, as claimed here, the elicitation of pleasure is a main function of human sexuality, then the preceding argument is effectively disarmed. That is, perhaps pleasure is itself a purpose for which the faculty was given. Unquote. If our views are correct, then it follows that non-procreative sex should be conceptually divorced from the issues of reproduction. This very thing may, in fact, be occurring on an evolutionary time scale as one moves up the phylogenic ladder, beginning with the most primitive of unicellular animals. Reproduction bifurcates into asexual and sexual forms. Indeed, Ina Jane Wondrum suggests that the distinction between reproduction and sexuality can be traced back as far as a protozoa, which exhibit a, quote, sexual-like behavior that is not followed by reproduction, unquote. Presumably, sexual reproduction is beneficial to the more advanced species because generic mixing provides diversity, and therefore greater adaptability to changing environments, as well as a mechanism for avoiding harmful mutations and in asexual schemes, e.g. cloning, if something goes wrong and this error continues to get duplicated, reproductive havoc will prevail. Sex, that many splendored thing, prevents this unfortunate scenario by constantly creating new genetic types. To take this model a step further, we suggest that sexual reproduction itself has bifurcated in the higher primates, such as bonobos and humans. In these species, sex and reproduction are no longer synonymous, but instead are differentiated in both form and function. Quote-unquote reproduction now consists of male-female vaginal intercourse between fertile individuals. At the right time of the month, ovulation, 
and without the interference of contraception, sex. On the other hand, encompasses everything else. Since sex is now divorced from reproduction, it is free to serve other beneficial functions among the higher primates, including facilitating bonding, enhancing group cohesion, promoting conflict resolution, and so on. In many ways, non-procreative sex is now closer in meaning to hugging and kissing than to baby-making intercourse. Nevertheless, society insists on viewing all sexual activity through the foggy filter of reproduction and the quote-unquote survival value of these behaviors. Need this be so? By way of contrast, consider, for example, eating. It, too, is crucial for the survival of the species, but the customs and food preferences of different cultures seldom address the survival value of eating. All preferred diets are ultimately imperfect and instead reflect cultural tastes and available resources. Many Americans who eat a traditional high-fat, high-protein diet are horrified by the sparse diet of the Japanese, not to mention the witchetty, grub-loving grub -loving cuisine of Australian Aborigines. Yet, whether cooked or raw, feral or cultivated, the actual choice or preparation of food has little relevance to survival. Instead, it is a nutritional balance underlying those choices that matters. Similarly, the actual manner in which various people express their sexuality merely reflects current fashion or custom and has little relevance to the survival of the species. Furthermore, since human beings are extraordinarily fertile, and since the biggest problem facing us is over, not under, population, we have enormous freedom and flexibility as a species to express all kinds of behaviors that are functionally related to sexual pleasure. Because even without an ex express intent to reproduce, people will be fruitful and multiply, if only by chance. This conclusion follows from several considerations, including the extreme pleasure people derive from sexual intercourse, the long duration of female fertility and male potency, and the not insignificant failure rates of even the best modern contraceptive devices. As long as large numbers of people continue to enjoy heterosexual intercourse, and we see no reason to suggest that this will cease to be the case any time soon, babies will continue to be born. And humanity's status as, quote, Lord and Master over the dominions of earth, unquote, will remain secure. Finally, we would like to suggest that non 
reproductive sex may actually be advantageous for species as a whole. The argument which follows is based on the simple observation that too much reproductive sex is as great a threat to the survival of the species as is too little. At this juncture, humankind can ill afford to continue increasing the population and depleting the natural resources of Earth. Because non Reproductive sex offers alternative avenues of sexual expression that by definition cannot increase the number of human inhabitants of this planet. Such activities may help mitigate the threat of extinction from overpopulation. Oral, form, oral sex as a form of birth control. In 1798, the English economist and clergyman Thomas Malthus published anonymously his first version of, quote, an essay on the principle of population, unquote. Over the next 28 years, he completed four subsequent editions in the 1830, rather, and in 1830, he provided a synopsis of his thesis called A Summary View of the Principle of Population. Malthus's theory of population dynamics is quite simple. It presumes a discrepancy between the rate of population growth and the resources necessary for subsistence. According to Malthus, whereas population increases geometrically, e.g. 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, food and other relevant resources only increase arithmetically Rather, arithmetically, that's to say, one, two, three, four, five, producing an ever widening gap. Some mechanism is therefore necessary to keep population growth consonant with the resources essential for subsistence. This essay has had an extraordinary impact upon the progression of science from the time of its inception to the present and it has evoked, provoked, continuous debate and scrutiny. Perhaps most important, Malthus's essay also proved instrumental to one of the most momentous theories in the history of science, natural selection. One day, something brought to my recollection Malthus's principle of population. I thought of his clear exposition of, quote, the positive checks, unquote, to increase, which keep down the population. It then occurred to me that these causes are their equivalents are continually acting in the case of animals also. And as animals usually breed much more rapidly than those mankind, the destructions every year from these causes must be enormous in order to keep down the numbers of each species. Since they evidently do not increase regularly from year to year, 
as otherwise the world would long ago have become densely crowded with those that breed most quickly. Why do some die and some live? And the answer was clearly that on the whole the best fitted live. From the effects of disease the most healthy escaped. From enemies the strongest, the swiftest or the most cunning. From famine the best hunters or those with the best digestion and so on. Then it flashed upon me that this self-acting process would necessarily improve the race because in every generation the inferior would inevitably be killed off and the superior would remain. That is, the fittest would survive. Then at once I seemed to see the whole effect of this. The more I thought over it, the more I became convinced that I had at length found, as a consequence of reading Malthus, the long-sought-for law of nature that solved the problem of the origin of species. The fortuitous impact of Malthus's work on Darwin is all the more extraordinary when one realizes that it had the identical, though independent, impact upon the co-founder of the theory of natural selection, Alfred Wallace. Wallace also notes, beginning of excerpt, the most interesting coincidence in the matter, i.e. the simultaneous discovery of natural selection, I think is that I, as well as Darwin, was led to the theory itself through Malthus. In my case, it was his elaborate account of the action of preventive checks in keeping down the population of savage races to a tolerably fixed but scanty number. This had strongly impressed me, and it suddenly flashed upon me that all animals are necessarily thus kept down. Quote, the struggle of existence, unquote while variations on which I was always thinking was necessarily, must necessarily often be beneficial and would then cause those varieties to increase while the injurious variations diminished. Although Malthus was by no means the first author to emphasize the exponential power of population growth, his essays codified the extraordinary implications of human fertility. These implications include the extent to which quote-unquote misery, e.g. war, pestilence, famine, etc., functions to keep this power in check, as well as the very real possibility that the human population could exceed the resources required for subsistence. As the world becomes more and more overburdened with a rapidly expanding human population, it certainly seems reasonable to examine whether non-procreative sex constitutes an essential or natural extension of the Malthusian preventive checks, rather preventative checks on population growth. 
the explosive nature of human population growth is strikingly illustrated in the following quotation by Paul and Anne Ehrlich. They observe that, quote, or rather, begin of excerpt, our own species, Homo sapiens, evolved a few hundred thousand years ago. Some 10,000 years ago, when agriculture was invented, probably no more than 5 million people inhabited Earth. Fewer than now live in the San Francisco Bay Area. Even at the time of Christ 2,000 years ago, the entire human population was roughly the size of the population of the United States today. By 1650, there were only 500 million people, and in 1850, only a little over a billion. Since there are now well past 5 billion people, the vast majority of the population explosion has taken place in less than a tenth of 1% of the history of Homo sapiens. End of excerpt. The deleterious effects of the world current population explosion are readily apparent. Rapid deforestation and desertification, widespread famine, global warming, and so on. Moreover, the myriad adverse, rather myriad adverse consequences of overpopulation are intricately intertwined. The increased utilization of scarce energy resources required by the growing population results in more and more pollution which facilitates global warming. Global warming, in turn, creates crop failures, coastal flooding, desertification, desertification, water shortages, general stress on the ecosystem, and so on, all of which stimulate conditions favorable to the occurrence of widespread famine. End of excerpt. One further application of the ever-growing global population, which is expected to double by 2050, is that people are engaging in all too much reproductive sex. That is, whether by design, accident, or some combination thereof, rather thereof, there is more than enough reproductive intercourse to ensure the continuation of the species. This should not be surprising. All that is required for humankind to reproduce itself is for each individual, on average, to raise to childbearing age one or more reproductively viable offspring. In other words, if only a handful of man's billions of sperm successfully fertilize eggs, they will have more than fulfilled their collective purpose to propagate their host's genes. Similarly, only one half of 1% of each woman's eggs would need be successful fertilized to ensure the continued expansion of the human race, ignoring abortions, miscarriages, and other complications. The inescapable conclusion arising from these considerations is that reproductive sex now actually threatens the survival of the human race via the destruction of the planet wrought by excessive overpopulation. Returning to Malthus's thesis, perhaps 
non-procreative sex could and does act as a check on population levels by diverting sexual energies away from activities that would otherwise increase the number of human inhabitants of Earth. In the somewhat limited sense, oral sex, for example, can truly be considered a contraceptive activity. These ideas are neither new nor necessarily restricted to humans. Aristotle's politics, for example, suggests that during severe food shortages in ancient Crete, men were encouraged to have, quote, intercourse with males, unquote, to reduce the threat of further overpopulation. In a non-human analogy, the incidence of male-to-male sexual behavior in caged rats has been observed to increase with overcrowding, suggesting a possible substitution of the non-procreative for the procreative. Of course, if too much energy were diverted into non-reproductive sexual activities so that procreative sex became a rarity, then alternate forms of sexual expression would cease to be advantageous for the human race. However, such a scenario seems extraordinarily unlikely, given how extraordinarily pleasurable sexual intercourse and orgasm are, and as a consequence how often they are repeated. How long the human female is typically fertile approximately 37 years, and the tremendous number of sperm each human male is capable of producing. Indeed, if the current exponential rate of population growth is any guide, humans are a bit too fertile. Thus, in a nutshell, our argument is that that non-procreative sex is advantageous for the species as a whole provided that it remains an adjunct to penile vaginal sex and does not entirely supersede it. In somewhat analogous vein, although Simon Freud considered non-procreative, non-reproductive sexual activities such as oral genital and anal genital stimulation to be perversions, a term arising no, no doubt, from a view of non-procreative sex as a perversion of the natural instinct to reproduce. He further held that such activities were pathologically pathological only if, quote, instead of appearing alongside the normal sexual aim and object, it ousts them completely and takes their places in all circumstances." The quote-unquote perversions thus become pathological only when practiced to the exclusion of normal sexual activities, i.e. heterosexual coitus. In much the same way, non-procreative sex is advantageous to the species as a whole only so long as it remains a complement 
to rather than a replacement for reproductive sex. An additional consideration bearing on the primacy of reproduction in human sexual relations is the percentage of human sexual behavior to de- rather devoted exclusively to procreation. Naturally, the percentage varies by cultural group and historical period. Certainly, in a liberal atmosphere with contemporary lifespans and modern methods of contraception, procreation represents a small fraction of sexual expression, especially when viewed from earliest infantile masturbation to geriatric sexuality. It therefore seems rather odd that a behavior that is so limited in practice should be considered the sole natural function of human sexuality. Although reproductive sexual intercourse is the instrument whereby the survival of the species is ensured, it constitutes but a small portion of modern human sexual experience. On the other hand, it seems readily apparent that the primary basis for human sexual expression and intimacy is sexual pleasure. Whether the desire to ultimately express is ultimately expressed in hetero or homosexual intercourse, the mutual masturbation or some other form of intimacy. Reproduction may therefore be viewed as a byproduct of sexual pleasure, since pleasure provides the incentive for engaging in reproductive sex and its non-procreative counterparts. Penile vaginal intercourse is thus no more natural or unnatural than any other sexual activity. While the ultimate, i.e. evolutionary, function of sex is clearly reproduction and the furtherance of the genes, the preceding argument suggests that sexual pleasure is in some sense primary in that it provides the incentive for sexual expression and hence drives evolution. Pleasure is the motivator that gets people to do it both reproductively and non-reproductively. Rather than being the function of sexual pleasure, perhaps the continuation of the species is instead merely a byproduct of the pleasurability of sex. It remains, however, to to specify more precisely the manner in which sexual pleasure ensures reproduction and to explain how this superlative mechanism came into being. Yeah. It remains, however, to specify more precisely the manner in which sexual pleasure ensures reproduction and to explain how this superlative mechanism came into being. To do so will first require a briefing from... You both.
A br- to do so will first require a brief digression through evolutionary theory and its relation to sexual pleasure. The Evolution of Sexual Pleasure, Part 1 Current evolutionary thought suggests that any heritable trait that increases the reproductive success of those who possess it will tend to increase in proportion within the gene pool. It is easy to see how this would work. As an example, suppose that extraversion, extraversion, considered as a character trait, is strongly associated with reproductive success. Therefore, extroverted people will have more children who grow to maturity and themselves reproduce than will less outgoing individuals. Furthermore, suppose that extraversion is heritable, i.e., that the children of extroverted people will tend likewise to be extroverts. An extroverted couple would then have extroverted kids, and lots of them, who in turn would produce numerous extroverted grandchildren, and so on. Provided that less extroverted people have fewer children and that there is no difference in survival between introverts and extroverts, the proportion of extroverts in the population would steadily grow with each generation. Clearly, then, nearly any trait that increases the frequency of reproductive sexual intercourse between a man and a woman will increase in prevalence, provided that it is heritable, because such a trait increases reproductive fitness, i.e., number of viable offspring, almost by definition. Examples, pathological traits that simultaneously increase copulatory behavior and decrease reproductive fitness can of course be devised. One promising candidate for such a fitness enhancing trait is the capacity for intense sexual enjoyment. It stands to reason that in our evolutionary past, individuals who experienced greater pleasure in sex were more likely to seek it out and were therefore likely to have more offspring than did people who did not enjoy sex as much. Then provided that a differential capacity for sexual pleasure is heritable, which seems a reasonable assumption since the capacity or this capacity is largely a function of human's physiology, the proportion of the population that found sex very pleasurable would have steadily increased with each generation. The pleasurability of sex is thus an evolved adaptation that facilitates reproduction. In other words, sex is pleasurable so that people will have sex. Even granting that sex should be better than a poke in the eye 
with a sharp stick, does this really explain why sex feels so good? That, it, that is, does it actually need to feel that good for people to repeat it? Wouldn't they continue to engage in sex if it only felt pretty good? Most people enjoy repeating behaviors such as drinking and ice-cold beer that feel pretty good. Not great, like sex. But clearly pretty good, especially after a long, hot day working around the house. The question is, given a high fertility rate and a penchant for repeating quote-unquote pretty good behaviors... Why isn't pretty good good enough? The reason we believe is that there are many disincentives that work against reproductive sexual behaviors. For one thing, intercourse is a dangerous activity, not so much now, but in the evolutionary past, tens of millions of years ago when the mechanism of sexual pleasure probably first evolved. These dangers ranged from the the violence that might be necessary to procure and retain a mate, to the increased vulnerability to attack experienced during intercourse itself. Sexually transmitted diseases and various infections posed additional threats to those engaging in sexual intercourse. The danger was even greater for women who faced the possibility of pregnancy and attendant and attendant complications including maternal death, infertility, and miscarriages. All of these perils made intercourse a precarious position rather proposition for our distant ancestors. However, we need not invoke such horrendous possible consequences as maternal death in, during childbirth to understand the monumental power of sexual pleasure. Perhaps observing or experiencing menstruation or natural childbirth was a sufficient disincentive for the less pleasurably inclined, if the prevalence of menstrual taboos is any indication. Men, and perhaps women too, often have adverse reactions to normal genital functions. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, for example, menstruation is viewed as curse, God's punishment, on all women for Eve's transgression in the Garden of Eden. In Victorian America, menstruation fears were manifested in the belief of physicians that menstruation made women weak, diseased, and dependent, and even caused temporary insanity in more emotional women. The contaminating effects of menstruation, rather menstrual, blood are also feared by Zambia, women, Zambia men in New Guinea. Heterosexual intercourse is nevertheless highly valued, while most Zambia men regard coitus with some trepidation, and the act itself is laden with shame. They generally regard it as intensely exciting and pleasurable, and no less so because it is dangerous. Furthermore, Despite the joys of conception and the maternal bonding, childbirth is a painful and a messy process that is not for the faint of heart. The experience of childbirth is, at least in theory, yet another disincentive to penile vaginal sex. Again, what might offset this disincentive? The answer, of course, is an, extraord is an extraordinarily 
powerful drive for sexual pleasure. As Freud observed, quote, women who conceive without pleasure show later little willingness to endure frequent childbirths, accompanied as they are by pain, unquote. Pleasure also provided an incentive for our ancestors to seek sexual partners, even when distance, competition, and other hardships prevailed. The capacity for intense sexual pleasure ensured their participation in sex, despite a plethora of disincentives. Obviously, however, there is and was a limit to how good sex can feel, or more precisely, to how much energy can be expended in the pursuit and enjoyment of sex. Deleterious consequences may result if too much time and effort are expended in the pursuit of sex because reproduction, after all, is only one of several evolutionarily significant activities. Resources must also be allocated to procure food, procure food by hunting or foraging to ensure the safety of oneself and one's family or other social unit to find adequate shelter, and so on. A delicate balance is required between reproduction on the one hand and survival, including the survival of offspring, on the other. Millions of years of evolution have arrived at just such a balance, like the baby bear's porridge in the tail of Goldilocks. The pleasure that modern Homo sapiens feel is neither too hot nor too cold. It is instead just right. The Evolution of Sexual Pleasure Part 2 To summarize, the evolutionary function of sexual pleasure is to encourage humans to engage in penile vag vaginal intercourse and thereby to propagate their genes. People have sex because it feels good, not necessarily because they can consciously desire offspring. The mechanism of pleasure is an evolutionary adaptation that solves the motivational problem of ensuring that sex takes place despite its myriad drawbacks. Sex, after all, is time-consuming, messy, and dangerous. And these costs must have been magnified many times over for our an ancient proto-human ancestors. Pleasure, though, made sex worthwhile. It provided the benefit needed to offset the sizable costs associated with intercourse such as time and energy expenditures, vulnerability to attack, the dangers of pregnancy and childbirth, and so on. Natural selection therefore favored those who experienced greater pleasure in sex because they tended to invest more of their energies into the pursuit of sex and hence begat more offspring, 
many of whom inherited copies of the enhanced pleasure-seeking genes. For animals, other than primates, sexual pleasure seems relatively less important. Although the question of whether or not dogs and cats truly enjoy sex can never be answered definitively, the point is really rather moot. Regardless, pleasure is not the primary reason that dogs and cats have sex. Instead, the sex lives of canines and felines are controlled by hormones and pheromones and are restricted to temporally limited periods of female fertility and sexual receptivity. Unlike other species, human females don't have especially delineated periods of sexual receptivity, estrus, and males don't respond mechanically to scents emitted by copulable females. Pleasure also provided an incentive for our ancestors to seek sexual partners even when distance, competition, and other hardships prevailed. The capacity for intense sexual pleasure ensured their participation in sex despite a plethora of disincentives. The principal advantage of the pleasure mechanism is Freedom. Freedom from a fixed hormonal schedule. As a motivational system, whore, for example, whore encounters the monies, moans are quite rigid. When a male dog scent of an estrus female, his mating behavior program takes over and nothing including fences, doors, and busy highways will keep him from locating and copulating with his paramour. The costs may be high, but he has no real choice, with hormones that is either now or never. Nor can the female control her costs. She can become pregnant only when an estrus, but she cannot choose the timing of these periods of fertility. For men and women, the reproductive imperative is restrained by logic and reason. Sexual pleasure may be sublime, but it is hardly worth dying for. For the most part, though significant exceptions occur, logic and reason dictate whether and when sexual encounters will take place. In this quote-unquote rational model, explored further in chapter 6, the decision to engage in sex is undertaken after a careful, though largely unconscious, analysis of the costs and benefits, quote-unquote utility of sex versus the utility of abstaining. Pleasure is reduced to a single factor in a complicated cost-benefit analysis. In theory, this decision procedure allows the costs of sex to be minimized while the benefits are retained.
Clearly, a large cerebral cortex is required for such complex decision-making. The preceding rational model is idealized, of course. Not all sexual decisions are rational from a purely utilitarian standpoint. And many of the costs and benefits are largely intangible, or at the very least, unquantifiable. Nevertheless, the point we wish to make is that the mechanism for, of pleasure affords humans, and perhaps other apes as well, an unprecedented degree of control over their sexuality. This freedom in turn provides a superior solution to the problem of maximizing sexual benefits while simultaneously minimizing attendant costs. More generally, pleasure, not just sexual pleasure, but any of various visceral pleasures, provides the basis for learning via reinforcement. Pleasure reinforces behaviors that are worth repeating. Many forms of pleasure reward behaviors that enhance the survivability of individual, such as eating ripe rather than immature or spoiled fruit. Whereas sexual pleasures enhances the survivability of the species at the expense of individual survivability. In other words, pleasure, like natural selection, rewards adaptive behaviors. However, the two mechanisms differ greatly in temporal scale. Whereas pleasure provides nearly immediate gratification, Evolutionary rewards are affected over tens, hundreds, and thousands of generations. Pleasure also provides a primitive categorization mechanism and a concomitant evolutionarily advantageous compression of information. Thus, people need not be biologically programmed separately to enjoy the state of ripe bananas, oranges, apricots, and so on. Instead, they are programmed to like sweet things, the gems, male. The simple rule is, quote, eat things that taste good, i.e. provide gustatory pleasure, and don't eat things that don't, unquote. A laundry list of the edible, edible versus the inedible is unnecessary. Inedibles, by and large, taste good, so a simple and large, simple rule to eat whatever tastes good suffices. With regard to sex, the rule apparently is, quote, if it feels good, do it. Hence, if there is a category, in, it must include all sex and not just procreative sex. Hence, if there is a category, it must include all sex, not just procreative sex. 
Finally and highly speculatively, pleasure and its close relative pain combine to form a natural system of morality, although we agree with Kant that notions of right and wrong are not inherently sensible. Pleasure and pain nevertheless provide a moral code that is sympathetic to evolutionary concerns. But this we mean only that if the pleasurable and the painful define behavioral categories to be sought and avoided, respectively, By this we mean only that if the pleasure and the painful define behavioral categories to be sought and avoided, respectively, then those animals that let pleasure and pain guide their behavior should have an evolutionary advantage over those that do not. Evolution in this sense rewards the moral. The moral. The two types of pleasure. In order to consider the evolution of sexual pleasure further, it will be helpful to distinguish between two types of pleasure. First, the pleasurable erotic feelings elicited by stimulation of the genitals or other erogenous zones, especially during intercourse. And second, the intense pleasure of orgasm. These two types of pleasure will be referred to here as for pleasure and orgasmic pleasure. The term for pleasure is originally due to Freud and clearly reflects the central importance of orgasm in his theory of sexuality. All other pleasures are merely anticipatory. These two pleasures are obviously distinct and if, as suggested earlier, sexual pleasure is evolutionarily adaptive, one might wonder which of the two types shoulders the greater motivational burden. In the extreme form, one might even ask, is orgasmic pleasure necessary? This question is motivated by the observation that the genital stimulation that accompanies penile vaginal intercourse is exquisitely pleasurable for most people, so much so that orgasm is often delayed as long as possible to maximize for pleasure. Indeed, the relatively long time required for human males to ejaculate, compared with other primates, could be an adaptation meant to maximize for pleasure. Of course, the longer sex takes, the greater the costs to the participants in terms of vulnerability, time, and energy expenditures. Shorter sex should therefore be favored by natural selection. 
Perhaps the greater pleasure enjoyed during prolonged intercourse is sufficient to counteract this negative pressure. That is, in our evolutionary past, maybe those who took longer experienced greater pleasure, hence engaged in intercourse more frequently and had more children. It might seem, therefore, that for pleasure alone would be sufficient to ensure that sexual behaviors get repeated. This being the case, it is not immediately clear what function, if any, is, is served by orgasm. Only male orgasm is considered here. The female counterpart is discussed in Chapter 5. As noted in the introduction, orgasm and ejaculation are concept conceptually, anatomically, and physiologically distinct phenomena, despite their usual temporal coincidence. Theoretically, there is no obvious reason why orgasm, particularly its pleasurable aspects, should accompany the ejaculation of sperm. Indeed, if the genital stimulation of intercourse is pleasurable enough, and if such stimulation eventually induces ejaculation, which it usually does, then the necessity for a pleasurable orgasm is undermined. This theory is fine as far as it goes, but it neglects the second half of the, ob of the observation with which this discussion began, namely that male orgasm is often delayed to maximize foreplasure. One of the most efficient ways for men to stave off orgasm is simply to stop having sex for a time and resume only after a near return to physiological normality. This technique could, in theory, be repeated indefinitely, with the result that ejaculation need never occur. Fortunately for the species, however, ejaculation is usually accompanied by the ecstasies of orgasmic pleasure. The intense pleasure of orgasm provides the necessary reward for a job well done. The fact that orgasmic pleasure is infinitely more intense than the preceding for pleasure is also consistent with this explanation. Orgasmic pleasure, hence ejaculation, is thus a goal to strive for rather than a pleasure-dampening nuisance. For this reason, it is a necessary component of the male sexual response of course, ejaculation is not automatic. For pleasure is required to ensure continued stimulation until orgasm. Thus, both orgasmic pleasure and for pleasure contribute to the ultimate goal of ejaculation. But the penile vaginal intercourse isn't the only form of sexual expression that's pleasurable, non-procreative. Sexual activities are enjoyable too. How, then, can sexual pleasure ensure that people reproduce? In other words, if people can experience all the gains of sex without any of the dis disincentives, why should they run the risk of possible complications arising from intercourse? This question is especially relevant to women for whom the risks are much greater. Many people, for example, engage in masturbation as a form of self-pleasuring, 
Because masturbation has none of the possible adverse consequences, that's to say acquiring a sexually transmitted disease associated with more social activities such as oral, anal, or vaginal intercourse, one might wonder why more adults haven't adopted it as their sole source of sexual pleasure. Why indeed? First, despite a paucity of data on the subject, it seems safe to suggest that for most people, masturbation is not as physically or emotionally satisfying as other sexual options. So, there may be a trade-off associated with interpersonal sex, greater threat of complications in exchange for increased pleasure and emotional satisfaction. But why penile vaginal intercourse with its attendant pregnancy-related risks rather than oral or anal sex? Again, it is possible that differences in the pleasurability of these activities are simply the desire for variety explains why most individuals do not eliminate coitus from their sexual repertoires. Penile vaginal intercourse is also the most egalitarian and, in the missionary position, the most intimate of commonly practiced heterosexual activities. Intercourse might therefore serve to strengthen the emotional bond between sexual partners as discussed further in the following section. All this may be true, but perhaps an even more parsimonious explanation exists, a simple solution to the conundrum of why people and other animals continue to engage in penile vaginal sex despite the risks is to assume that masturbation, oral, and anal sex are just unanticipated concomitants of the evolution of sexual pleasure. That, because they do not interfere too greatly with reproductive behaviors, have not been eliminated through the callous machination, machinations of natural selection. Our theory in its entirety is then as follows. Sex is pleasurable to ensure that people engage in reproductive behaviors despite the sometimes substantial risks that these behaviors entail. But the pleasurability of sex, relying as it does on both physiological and psychological processes, cannot be restricted to purely reproductive behaviors. And for this reason, a wide range of sexual activities can be enjoyed. This enjoyment is fine as long as it does not interfere with the propagation of genes, hence the regeneration of the species. We thus come full circle, returning to the arguments with which this chapter began.
Because sexual intercourse is so pleasurable and humans are so fertile, conception is bound to occur at a rate sufficient to ensure the continuation of the human race, even if other activities are enjoyed as well. The Multiple Functions of Sexual Pleasure Before concluding this evolutionary discussion, however, we should mention an alternative theory of the utility of sexual pleasure. In his influential though greatly criticized book, The Naked Ape, British naturalist Desmond Morris suggests a different, though somewhat complementary, purpose for the pleasurability of sex. Morris proposes that the primary function of sex is to facilitate the bonding of males and females in pairs, rather than to ensure procreation. In this scheme, sexual pleasure is relegated to encouraging pair bonding in much the way that it supports procreation in the theory outlined earlier. Morris observes that the vast majority of copulation in our species is obviously concerned, not with producing offspring, but with cementing the pair bond by providing mutual rewards for the sexual partners." Unquote. The mutual rewards being presumably the pleasurable sensations that accompany sex. While we agree that the reproduction is no longer the principal rationale for quote, the vast majority of copulation in our species, unquote, we also consider the experience of sexual pleasure to be a goal unto itself. Although there can be little doubt that such pleasuring yields as a secondary gain and strengthening of the emotional bond between mated couples, we wish to emphasize that neither reproduction nor sexual pleasure demands such a bond in order to operate. Strictly speaking, pair bonding cannot be the primary function of sexuality. In fact, in many instances, evolution would favor promiscuity, at least for males. To paraphrase a slogan currently in vogue, quote, he who dies with the most offspring wins. In the same vein as the previous quote, it is immaterial rather, it's immaterial whether or not those offspring were conceived within the bounds of a monogamous relationship. Their existence is all that matters. Additional doubts about Morris's pair bonding hypothesis are raised in chapter 4. In the same vein as the previous quote from The Naked Ape is the following from Kinsey et al. Quote, no appreciable parts of the coitus either in or out of marriage, 
is consciously undertaken as a means of effecting reproduction. Regardless of the source, the message is clear. Sex isn't just for procreation anymore. Moreover, given the prevalence of extramarital or extramonogamal sexual activity in modern society, it seems unlikely that the primary function of sex is simply to facilitate bonding. This is not to deny the evolutionary significance of personal Moreover, given the prevalence of extramarital or extramonogamous sexual activity, in modern society, it seems unlikely that the primary function of sex is simply to facilitate bonding. This is not to deny the evolutionary significance of interpersonal sex, and I particularly, and rather, and particularly sexual pleasure in the formation of stable male-female pair bonds, but rather to suggest that this function is of secondary importance at best. Besides reproduction and bonding, what other functions does sex serve? Among bonobos, sex is used to prevent hostility and ease social intentions. In addition to providing pleasurable satisfaction and ensuring reproduction, the bonobo credo being apparently make love not war. This in part explains why bonobo sexual interactions occur between every possible age and gender combination, old with young, female with female, etc. In support of this theory, DeWall observed marked increases in sexual behaviors around feeding time, when tensions regarding food distribution are particularly acute. In one such episode, a female bonobo literally snatched the food out of her male partner's hands in the midst of intercourse. Sex is also employed as a reconciliatory gesture following aggressive behaviors among male bonobos. In all, DeWall estimates that less than a third of all the sexual encounters he observed were reproductively motivated. Although bonobo sexuality certainly strengthens the ties between individuals, it does so without requiring the institution of monogamous relationships. It is perhaps suggestive in this regard that male ejaculation did not occur in any of the sexual encounters the wall observed, with the possible exception of male-to-female copulation.
Given the human propensity to view orgasm as the ultimate goal of sex, at least for males, this lack of climactic activity is rather surprising. However, remember that the majority of bonobo's sexual encounters take place during tension-filled, rather tension-filled social interactions, social situations rather. If, edu- if ejaculation had occurred, then the male's ability to resolve or avoid additional conflicts via sexual overtures would have been sev- severely diminished during the subsequent refractory period. In other words, orgasmic sex, if orgasm can be identified with ejaculation in the bonobo, would be a liability in this situation, at least for males. Sexual play among spinner dolphins has also been observed to increase as the feeding grounds where the animals engage in social competition for food are approached. One interpretation holds that this behavior is primarily aggressive muscle flexing, whose goal is to maintain dominance subordinate relationships. Although in many animals, dominance relationships are expressed through sexual behaviors, especially isosexual contacts between males, the bonobo example suggests that the increased sexuality of spinner dolphins as they prepare for prepare for themselves. The bonobo example suggests that the increased sexuality of spinner dolphins as they prepare for the social interactions that accompany feeding might in fact be a means of preventing rather than a symptom of aggression. The observation that spinner dolphins like humans and bonobos display nominally sexual behaviors in diverse social situations is also consistent with this explanation. Spinner experts Randall Walls, Wells and Kenneth Norris suggest that homosexuality-oriented behavior such as back-to-back general propulsion between male females or copulation between males can be viewed as a co-option of a sexual part pattern into social concourse between dolphins. Do humans use sex to avoid conflict? At the personal level, the answer is an unequivocal yes. Many a lover's quarrel is settled not by resolving the issues under debate, but by, quote, crawling into the sack, unquote. This use of sex may also extend to larger social groupings. Anecdotal evidence suggests 
that female initiates of the Hells Angels Motorcycle Club are or were required to have sex with each male member of the club in order to gain admittance. This could be interpreted as an attempt to forestall sexual access conflicts within the social unit. Likewise, women are exchanged in many tribal societies, like in the highlands of New Guinea, as an integral component of peacekeeping negotiations. Based on the evidence summarized here, one might suspect that in the distant past, sex played an important role in maintaining the cohesion of the social group by reducing tensions. Indeed, some evolutionary theorists, like Morris, believe that it did, but not in the direct fashion of the bonobo, among whom potential adver adversaries enjoy a brief sexual exchange rather than escalating aggression. Instead, in humans, the influence of sexual pleasure is hypothesized to have acted by way of enhancing the pair bond. In brief, this theory holds that sex cements the bond, providing each male his own mate, thereby reducing sexual competition among males. St. Paul's advice, nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife. Regardless of the merits of this theory, we note that in it, once again, the pleasures of sex are reserved for the monogamously bound. Returning from our evolutionary past, sexual pleasure serves a wide variety of functions in contemporary society besides facilitating reproduction. Pair bonding and the expression of feelings of intimacy Sexuality is an integral part of many people's self-image and perception of worth. Some people even define themselves in terms of their sexuality. Western culture's insistence on dichotomizing sexual object choice has even manufactured identity categories based on sexual orientation. In America, gay means much more than simply male sexual preference for men as opposed to women. It is indicative of enhanced freedom, self-esteem, and acceptance. Peer acceptance is also critical to adolescents' assessments of self-worth. Teenagers everywhere use sex to advertise their status as mature individuals and thereby their independence from parents. Finally, for many people, the emotional and physical release experienced during orgasm decreases tension and irritability. Of course, the pleasurability of sex further enhances and very likely underlies these additional functions, which are thus secondary benefits of the evolution of sexual pleasure. The Qualia of Life Unfortunately, the evolutionary focus of the previous sections omits a critical, perhaps even the most important aspect of what pleasure really is. 
Pleasure is a feeling, a sensation, a subjectively experienced phenomenon. And this fact, it turns out, engages some rather intractable philosophical questions. As an introduction to the dilemma posed by the inherently subjective nature of pleasure, consider the dubious proposition that animals other than humans are incapable of feeling pleasure. According to this view, although a dog may actively seek out his master and beg to be petted, and may roll his eyes and act as though in heaven while having his belly rubbed, he feels no pleasure. He only behaves as though he did. Is such a situation plausible? On one hand, we are tempted to respond without hesitation with resounding no. Anyone who has spent any significant amount of time around animals, from mice to elephants, cannot seriously entertain the notion that they have no feelings. On the other hand, there is no proof that in such is the case and there never can be, given the subjective nature of the experiences in question. At best, we can analogize and attribute pleasure, pain, and consciousness to other species, according to how similar they are to humans. That other great apes are conscious is indubitable, that dogs and cats feel pleasure and pain is also fairly certain, and so on down to insects to which people typically, though unscientifically, deny consciousness. In the expression of emotions in man and animals, Charles Darwin reports the following observations. Begin of excerpt. With the lower animals, we see the same principle of pleasure derived from contact in association with love. Dogs and cats manifestly take pleasure in rubbing against their masters and mistresses and in being rubbed or petted by them. Many kinds of monkeys, as I am assured by the keepers in the zoological zoological gardens delight in fondling and being fondled by each other and by persons to whom they are attached end of excerpt and of course many primates also experience pleasure pleasures that are specifically sexual although most readers are probably inclined to grant consciousness to dogs cats sheep and apes it nevertheless remains conceivable that these animals lack subjective inner life. Perhaps a simple thought experiment will help make this clear. Imagine a human-like robot, a perfect simulation in every respect that behaves in every situation in every way like a human, but that nevertheless feels neither pleasure nor pain, nor anything else for that matter. It does not react as though it felt these sensations, for example, when it accidentally burns its hand. It quickly pulls it away from the source of heat, possibly shaking it and cursing wildly, wildly while doing so. And like a human, it tends all things being equal to seek experiences known to be associated with pleasure and to avoid those connected with pain. In other words, its behavior vis-a-vis Pleasure 
and pain is entirely indistinguishable from that of a human being, but it doesn't really feel the pain or enjoy the pleasure. Clearly, the plausibility of such a robot depends on whether or not the functional mechanisms of pleasure and pain are truly separable from the subjective feelings that accompany them. To introduce a bit of philosophical jar jargon, the subjective feelings and sensations associated with pleasure and pain shall hereafter be referred to as qualia. Although it is clear from their behavior that dogs experience the functional manifestations of pleasure and pain, we can never know whether they, are ex they also experience the qu associated qualia. The question posed earlier asking whether the quality of pleasure and pain can be separated from their functional role. There are syndromes, uh, quote, syndromes of most typical causes and effects, unquote, is hardly novel. Related questions of the nature of the relationship of mind to body have troubled philosophers, dating back to at least to Aristotle. The most famous resolution of this problem, of course, is Descartes' suggestion that all substances belong to one of two basic classes, the physical and mental. Descartes maintained that the mind and the brain are fundamentally different types of entities. The mind is mental substance, characterized by thinking, believing, and so on, whereas the brain is physical substance, the defining quality of which is that it occupies space. According to Descartes, Despite being radically different kinds of substances, the mental and the physical nevertheless interact with each other. As when a belief that it's hot, a mental event, causes someone to open a window, a physical event. Many people intuitively believe, like Descartes, in some form of dualism in which the physical and the mental though fundamentally different interact through as yet undiscovered mechanisms the nature of the posited interaction is problematic however as princess elizabeth inquired in 1643 quote how can the mind of man, being only a thinking substance, determine his bodily spirits to perform voluntary actions? Unquote. This and similar difficulties have led most modern scientists to reject dualism in favor of materialism, which posits the existence of only a single physical substance. According to materialism, 
Mental states are simply brain states, although the form that this equivalence assumes is a subject of continuing debate. For example, is pain always a particular brain state or just some brain state? Thus, in this view of the mind arises from the functioning of the physical brain. However, the existence of qualia, for example, the way pain feels as distinct from its functional role, presents a special challenge to materialism. In dualistic terms, the functional basis of pleasure and pain is unarguably physical, being composed of skin and pain receptors, nerves, neurons, brain centers, and so on. The associated qualia, on the other hand, are intrinsically mental. This is not to say that qualia are necessarily divorced from the physical realm, the opposite is almost certainly true. Qualia, it seems, arise from physical processes. Pleasure and pain may very well be the subjective correlates of the firing of certain neurons in the brain. Though not entirely uncontroversial, this much is relatively unproblematic. However, Difficulties arise when one attempts to explain how mental phenomena such as qualia can have physical effects, such as causing a particular behavior. A basic tenet of materialism, and one with which most scientists would heartily agree, is that the cause of a physical effect must itself be physical. It follows from this that qualia cannot have physical effects, such as influencing behavior, unless they are themselves physical entities. For this reason, various flavors of materialism attempt either to abolish, ignore, or reduce qualia to the physical events from which they arise. The most common materialistic detour around the problem of qualia is simply to deny the causal efficacy of qualia. In this view, qualia are held to be merely epiphenomenal. That is, qualia are assumed to be mere byproducts of physical events in the brain and to possess no causal powers distinct from the brain events themselves. The counterintuitive nature of this claim is readily apparent. Most people believe that when they touch a hot stove, it is the feeling of pain that causes them to withdraw their hand. The pain seems to play an integral causative role in the behavioral sequence. Nevertheless, according to many materialistic theories, the pain cannot be causally efficacious. Instead, the pain arises as a byproduct of some brain event, such as the one that initiates 
the behavioral act of withdrawing the hand from the hot stove. However, the existence of qualia is, we believe, both self-evident and evolutionarily significant. The preceding sections presented a simplified account of the evolution of sexual pleasure viewed as a mechanism. To reiterate, pleasure is adaptive because it provides a non-rigid motivational system for ensuring evolutionarily advantageous behaviors. People have sex because it feels good. The question is why it feels good. To return to the canine and robot examples, couldn't people respond appropriately without feeling pleasure? Intuitively, the answer is no. But we can do better than this. It is commonly assumed that consciousness, including pleasure and pain, is an adaptation shaped over the millennia by the forces of natural selection. Suppose this is true. Suppose in particular that qualia have an evolutionary history of their own. What then is the adaptive significance of qualia? To examine this issue, assume that a qualia-less robot of the sort described earlier has been constructed. In fact, assume that a whole society of these super-robots has been produced, the first two, one male and the one female, by humans and the remainder by an unspecified form of artificial sexual reproduction that, like human reproduction, is subject to the forces of natural selection. Or, if you like, imagine a race of creatures identical to humans in every way but one. They do not experience the qualia of pleasure and pain. Now leave these two races, ours and the qualia-less one, and return after 10 million years of evolution by natural selection. Has one race won out over the other? If there truly were an evolutionary advantage to qualia, one might expect the human race to have dominated, perhaps even obliterated, the qualia-less race. But is this really a reasonable expectation? Remember that both races react identically to pleasurable and painful stimuli and situations. Their behavior is in all instances and details identical. However, well adapted one race is to its environment, the other should be equally so. Whatever qualities one might capitalize on to increase its fitness, so might the other one thus ignoring random effects. There should be no difference in survival or reproduction. Hence, neither race should predominate over the other 
in this mock evolutionary competition. The ineluctable conclusion is that if qualia is truly evolutionarily adaptive, they must be more than merely epiphenomenal. They must be causally efficacious in motivating behavior. That is, pleasure and pain necessarily have behavioral consequences. This really is not surprising. A trait must have some causal efficacy to be evolutionarily advantageous. Furthermore, this result confirms the intuition that the way pleasure and pain feel plays an important role in determining behavior. Pleasure and pain derive their status as motive forces from the feelings that accompany them. A sensationless pain is not a pain. There would be no reason to avoid it. Hence, it would have no behavioral consequences. The functional roles of pleasure and pain demand that they be felt. Unfortunately, because qualia are inherently subjective, how pleasure and pain feel cannot be captured in any physical description. As Thomas Nagel explains in his seminal essay, what is it like to be a bat? The subjective character of experience is not captured by any of the familiar, recently devised reductive analyses of the mental, for all of them are logically compatible with its absence. It is not analyzable in terms of any explanatory system of functional states or intentional states, since these could be ascribed to robots or automata that behaved like people though they experienced nothing. It is not analyzable in the causal role of experiences in relation to typical human behavior for similar reasons. Even if the physiology of pleasure were to turn out to be no more complicated than the firing of a few neurons in the limbic lobe of the brain, a complete description of the phenomena of pleasure uh, as people experience it would remain elusive. To summarize the argument, once again, if the qualia of pleasure and pain are evolutionarily added, rather evolutionary adaptations, then they must be causally effective. In humans, it at least the capacity to experience the sensations associated with pleasure and pain is a necessary prerequisite for exhibiting the appropriate behaviors, including pleasure-seeking and pain avoidance. That is, the qualia plays a causal role in eliciting appropriate behaviors. Thus, according to this argument, and assuming its premises, mental phenomena such as qualia must be able to influence physical behavior as suggested by Descartes, but refuted by most right-thinking modern scientists. Naturally, there are a number of ways to avoid this somewhat unsavory conclusion. One could, for example, insist that the qualia themselves did not evolve, 
but simply are and always have been. However, however given the intricate connection between qualia and the behavioral mechanisms of pleasure and pain, which most surely did evolve, this seems a rather untenable position. A more promising approach is to argue that qualia are the intrinsically mental constituents of a physical property. According to this theory, any robot that exactly mimics human responses to pleasure and pain must necessarily experience the associated qualia so that the behavioral slash functional roles occupied by pleasure and pain are inseparable from the qualia. A robot that displayed the appropriate behaviors but lacked the associated qualia would be an impossibility, much as heat, a property, is a necessary concomitant of behavioral motion. A behavior. Although this view seems plausible enough, it is somehow unsatisfying and seems to beg the question at hand why should the pleasure be associated with evolutionary adaptive behaviors? Perhaps, as Nigel suggests, there are facts beyond the reach of human concepts. If so, the facts. It is likely that the nature of human-body interactions is one such fact. Childhood, leisure, and sexual pleasure. If sexual pleasure is an evolved adaptation in humans, that is, if people are hardwired for pleasure, one may ask when the associated behaviors manifest themselves. The answer is in infancy and early childhood. As amused or aghast, parents can attest like smiling and laughter, interest in genital stimulation begins early, and for most people, never entirely fades. We believe, consistent with Freud's theory of human sexuality, that childhood sexual feelings, interests, and motivations are naturally heterogeneous or polymorphously perverse, meaning that all sexual possibilities are open. Because childhood is a time for exploring the world, including the proximal world of the flesh. As puberty unfolds, however, the drive for sexual pleasure is intensified and according to Freud, the aim of quote-unquote sexual instinct 
or libido shifts from self-pleasuring to the consummation of reproductive activities. This shift is especially noticeable in post-pubertal males as an increasing emphasis on orgasm and ejaculation. If heterogeneous sexual pleasure is overtly manifested in childhood because of the freedom of exploration and the absence of procreative pressures and constraints, what happens to polymorphous perversity as childhood melts into adulthood with its attendant responsibilities? The answer, we believe, is evident in the circumstances that characterize childhood, exploration, leisure, and the absence of adult responsibilities. We propose somewhat in defiance of Freud that when these conditions extend into adulthood, so does sexual heterogeneity, heterogeneity. Historically, as societies developed and citizens' lives became both safer and comparatively less arduous, heterogeneous, for example, oral, anal, genital, sexual pleasure was incorporated into adulthood to a much greater degree than it previously had been. In many cases, favorable circumstances prevailed for only a subclass of society, as would be predicted by the differential opportunities for leisure. In late 18th, early 19th century Hawaii, before the arrival of Christian missionaries, for example, the sexual conduct of the hereditary aristocrats who lived, in, who lived in or close to the political centers was noticeably different from that of the commoners who as agriculturists, fishermen, and artists resided and labored apart from the chiefly courts. By our standards, the entirety of Hawaiian society was sexually very permissive. But at the courts, erotic pastimes figured prominently in the lives of the leisured nobles. Sexual liaisons, both heterosexual and homosexual, were freely formed and just as freely broken off. End of excerpt. A somewhat analogous situation existed in ancient Greece, where numerous outlets for heterogeneous sexual pleasure existed for male citizens, though not entirely absent. Fewer such outlets existed for women. For men, both heterosexual, female, and homosexual, male, prostitutes, were available as sexual partners as were slaves of both genders. We presume that these particular options were viable in part because male citizens in ancient Greek society had ample leisure time. 
And what is the best model of idyllic leisure? Childhood, of course. Because childhood is a natural time for heterogeneous sexual pleasuring. It seems reasonable that ancient Greek citizens would co-opt aspects of childhood, i.e., that's to say, heterogeneous sexuality, into their conception of leisure. In many respects, this suggestion mirrors Thornstein Veblen's notion of leisure. For example, because of the prevalence of slaves and non-citizens for quote-unquote demeaning work, plus the subjugation of women to perform these duties, male citizens in ancient Greece could remain conspicuously exempt from all useful employment. They therefore had plenty of time for non-productive activities and could emphasize intellectual or aesthetic pursuits as, quote, serviceable evidence of an unproductive expenditure of time, unquote. Perhaps heterogeneous sexual pursuits were utilized as tangible evidence of the non-productive consumption of time. This is not to suggest that ancient Greek citizens were the first consumers of heterogeneous sexual pleasure, nor particularly prone to these pursuits. Because childhood is a natural time for heterogeneous sexual pleasuring, it seems reasonable that ancient Greek citizens would co-opt aspects of childhood, i.e. heterogeneous sexuality, into their conception of leisure. In many respects, this suggestion mirrors Thornston Veblen's notion of leisure. For example, because of the prevalence of slaves and non-citizens for demeaning work, quote-unquote, plus the subjugation of women to perform these duties, male citizens in ancient Greece could remain conspicuously exempt from all useful employment. They therefore had plenty of time from non-productive activities and could emphasize intellectual or aesthetic pursuits as, quote, serviceable evidence of an unproductive expenditure of time, unquote. Perhaps heterogeneous sexual pursuits were utilized as tangible evidence of non-productive consumption of time. This is not to suggest that ancient Greek citizens were the first to con first consumers of heterogeneous sexual pleasure, nor particularly prone to these pursuits. Indeed, we propose that heterogeneous sexual pleasures, pleasure has 
been pursued in varying degrees for humans of all geologic ages as suggested by the sexual behavior of our primate relatives. However, the burdens of adulthood usually relegate such pleasuring to childhood. Only when cultures minimize the burdens of adulthood as, for example, in ancient Greece, can leisure be created, thereby permitting, though not guaranteeing, some form of heterogeneous sexual pleasuring. The particular form or the absence of heterogeneous sexual pleasure is largely determined by the existing cultural milieu, meaning that leisure is not invariably associated with polymorphous sexual pleasure, although leisure provides the opportunity for it. In any case, such pleasuring is always an extension of quote-unquote natural childhood sexuality. One of the reasons that leisure does not invariably produce childlike heterogeneous sexuality in adulthood is the presence of cultural rules and regulations that seek to restrain sexual expression. As humans being, human beings form groups, regulations are needed to foster cooperation settle disputes, maximize resources, provide safety, and so on. Unfortunately, sexual pleasure is ripe for regulation because it is critical to kinship, marriage, child-rearing, and related concerns, and because it profoundly affects the manner in which adults spend their time. Historically, if one group or another wants to control how adults spend their time, leisure or otherwise, as or to maximize their numbers, a first step is to implement sexual restrictions in service of these goals. Under such a system, two conditions typically prevail. First, work societal duties, and so on take priority in adulthood. Second, sexual intercourse within marriage is strictly enforced and concomitantly alternative expressions of sexual pleasure are tabooed. Because sexual pleasure is so inherently appealing or frighteningly intoxicating depending on one's viewpoint, these rules and restrictions are necessarily punitive and repressive so as to offset the magnificent power of sexual pleasure.